Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Ella and Alice in the studio. On 3CR Breakfast, it's 17th of November. It is, and it's 7.01am. And how's your week been, Alice? My week has been weird. Ooh, detail. Yeah. I mean, there's not even much to say about it, really. It's just been a bit of a weird one. Like, I guess because it's been a bit colder and I've found that I'm just sleeping, eating, hibernating, I don't know, as if I'm a big woolly bear or something. Mm, yeah, I was just saying the same to you before we went on air. I seem to be sleeping a lot every night and I'm not sure why. <laughs> I know. I feel like it's got to be something to do with the the weather. Yeah, let's blame it on the weather. <laughs> yeah, it has to be. It can't be us. <laughs> We're perfect. <laughs> um, no, it, it has been a bit weird, but I feel I feel good now. I've had a coffee and a ham and cheese croissant, which has made me feel great. Yeah, I've brought in my usual very large jar of coffee, which always helps me in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So for listeners at home, um, Ella usually sinks like a kilo, <laughs> a kilo jar well, of coffee. I tell everyone the <laughs> Yeah, sorry. There's no secrets here. Not at 3CL Wednesday breakfast. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it's quite it's quite large. But how far are you? Um, how far are you through it today? Ella? Oh, I think I'm about a quarter of the way through. I started oh, a bit later than usual this morning. I was saying I sat in my bed for a good half an hour before I could muster up the energy to go make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you've got it now. Good for you. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> nice. And how how's your week been? Yeah, really nice. I um, got away on the weekend, which um, was good. I oh, went up lovely. to Castlemaine with my partner. Um, so originally we were going to camp, but um, it was very rainy and wet over the weekend. So we had a last minute change of plans and got an Airbnb. Oh, how um, nice is that? Yeah, which is lovely. We were staying at like this very old stone cottage um, with open fireplaces and oh. it's very cosy. It's nice. <laughs> oh my gosh, that sounds so nice. And were you in Castlemaine for any kind of specific reason? or No, just, just somewhere pretty that wasn't too far to drive for a three day break. So <laughs> Yeah. That sounds beautiful. Um, but yeah, to be honest, it did hail and thunderstorm a lot. So we brought a projector up and spent a lot of time watching movies. We had a bit of a Hunger Game marathon. So, <laughs> Oh, very cool. Love a bit of Hunger Games. Mm, me too. <laughs> Perfect for a rainy day. Yes. Yeah, nice. I actually watched um, Lord of the Rings over the weekend. Same same Ooh, kind of like yeah. vibe as well. That, that like cold, wet um, and just want to get like sunk into a movie for two and a half hours or something good saga did you do a marathon or just the one (laughs) just the one i couldn't handle three back to back and then the hobbit as well oh Uh, i mean no no, that's a real undertaking (laughs) yeah you don't want to you don't want to do that that is a bit of a for me i would be like i have wasted my saturday you know (laughs) just one i was like this is perfect yes um so yeah 
And what have we got on today? Yeah, so we've got a good mix of stuff today. So later on in the show, about quarter past eight, I'm going to be speaking to Pilar Aguilera, who's the 3CR chairperson. Um, and she is also an activist with Truth and Justice for Chile, um, the Australian chapter. So we're going to be getting an update on the case of Adriana Rivas, which we've covered on Wednesday Breakfast before. Mm-hmm. Um, so for listeners not familiar with it, uh, Adriana Rivas uh, is basically in the process of being extradited to Chile or Chile uh, for crimes under the Pinochet era. So she's accused of involvement in the kidnapping of seven people in Chile during this era. Um, and yeah, there's been a bit of a long legal process trying to get her extradited. Um, and her latest appeal is up tomorrow. So we're going to be hearing from Pila how that's going. Wow, yeah, really looking forward to getting an update from Pilo about that. Yeah, yeah, me too. And then at about 22.8, we're going to be hearing an interview with Sophie Trevitt from the Raise the Age campaign and the Change the Record um, group. And this is as you as you all may have seen, our listeners are very on onto this. I'm sure you've all you're all aware, but um on Friday the government released a, a very nothing announcement that the Attorney Generals have agreed to develop a proposal to raise the age from ten. This is for the rate the age of um how young a child can be incarcerated. Um at, currently it's at ten. They're gonna raise it to twelve. This is this has been sitting with the Attorney General for three years and as far as Raise the Age is concerned, which is the group, uh, sorry, which is the campaign and the Change the Record is the group, this is not a win. This is nothing to be celebrated and this does nothing for children who are just incarcerated for such minor minor things and any child incarcerated so yeah it's pretty bizarre really as we were saying before why change the age if you're only going to do it to 12 um, 14 still so young yeah um, and and 14 has been um kind of seen as the bare minimum of the youngest you know so that is what the raise the age campaign actually calls for they wanted to try and raise it from 10 to 14 14 holds it in that median age on on a global scale that is the median age um internationally of when children tend to to be incarcerated and so that's what this campaign was looking for obviously that hasn't happened and they're really really disappointed with the outcome so i spoke to sophie a couple of months ago so in this interview um, it, the the age is referred to as being 10 years old. But, yeah, just note when you're listening that it has been brought up to 12 now and based on all of the correspondence from the Raise the Age campaign and the group, they are really disappointed and they're calling it just some smoke and mirrors. Yeah, very disappointing. And as we know, this is an issue that disproportionately affects Indigenous children in Australia. So. Absolutely. And that is the... Um, that is one of the the subjects that we speak about in the interview. So do stay on for that. That's at 7.40. That'll be good to hear. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, at around quarter past seven, we're going to hear from Claudia. Um, So Claudia spoke with Dr. Karai Okano um, from La Trobe University about the rise of single women in Japan and the film Hold Me Back, which is screening as part of the Japanese Film Festival this week in Melbourne. Awesome. Cool. So it should be a good show. Um, but in the meantime, let's get started with a song. Uh, this is Peace on Earth by Ebo Taylor. <laughs> 
Listening to 3CR, and we just heard Peace on Earth from Abbo Taylor. Next up, we're going to hear Claudia's interview with Dr. Kaori uh, Okano. Um, and just a heads up to listeners the following discussion uh, looks at the experience of heterosexual women in Japan, um, but it doesn't reference the experience of other genders or sexualities. 
This week marks the 25th year of the Japanese Film Festival in Australia. The event showcases a hugely diverse range of screen productions across a multitude of genres, exploring everything from yakuza and sumo wrestling to art and food, modern day love and dystopian futures. In the mix are three films directed by women, one about a former gangster re-entering society after a spell in prison, another exploring experiences of motherhood, and the third, a rom-com called Hold Me Back, which tackles the subject of single women in contemporary Japan. Hold Me Back won the most popular film at the Tokyo International Film Festival last year and is screening this Saturday at the Kino Cinema in Melbourne. The film is followed by a talk about the social factors leading to the rise of single women in Japan to be given by Dr. Kari Okano, Professor of Japanese Studies and Asian Studies at La Trobe University. Dr. Okano is an expert in the field of diversity and social justice in Japanese education, multiculturalism and gender equality. She is the project leader in a longitudinal study of working women in Kobe and the author of four books, including Education and Social Justice in Japan, published by Routledge this year. Dr. Okano joins me this morning to talk to us about the gender landscape in contemporary Japan and what this means for young women. Welcome, Kaori. Thank you, Claudia. I wondered if we could start off by sort of framing the, the context of Japan's social landscape for our listeners. Japan's traditionally placed a high value on marriage and conventional family structures. Can you give us a brief overview of this and the types of expectations that have traditionally fallen on women? Thank you, Claudia. Um, the, the marriage was very much expected by the late 20s until I would say 20 years ago. And the main incentive for women to marry was to have children. And this was because unlike in Australia, uh, there are very few people who have children outside the marriage. Uh, here, uh, you can produce babies outside, uh, outside marriage, say for instance, through de facto marriage, but that is very, very rare in Japan in comparison to other first world countries, partly because of the social stigma still attached to the children from single parent family. So there is a strong incentive to marry, but uh, for various social context reasons that there are fewer people marrying and there is a delayed marriage. And that is a great concern both for individual parents as well as to the policymaker, because it has resulted in low birth rate. And as you know, Japan's population is declining. So can you tell us what has changed and caused this shift in the patterns of young women in Japan? Why are they getting married less often? Uh, well, well, there are various reasons. Uh, the first reason is that, that more women are in paid employment. Well, in the old days, that the once women marry, they quit and then became a full-time housewife. And that was the ideal gender norm for a woman, be a full-time house, house, housewife and then bring up children, because the bringing up children itself is considered to be a very valuable uh, social role, uh, recognized by the society. Um, so the once the women 
highly educated, I must say that the, a higher percentage of girls proceed to tertiary education than boys now, just like in Australia or other Anglophone first world countries. So the more women uh, enter paid employment and they continue to work. And this was partly because of the industrial relations restructuring that took place in 1990s, whereby lifetime employment and senior uh, seniority wage system have somewhat, uh, it hasn't diminished, declined. And therefore, from male perspective, the highly educated men have more of a rational calculation about the marriage partner in that rather than having a, a full-time housewife, having a, a wife who have an earning capacity or potential earning capacity is desirable. And therefore, the women get more education, they stayed longer. Um, and I guess the highly educated women start considering opportunity cost by getting married and possibly quitting the work. Um, the other aspect is that there is a, a definite decline in arranged or facilitated marriage, what we call omiyai marriage. Uh, the, it's reversed, the, the percentage of marriage pattern between the so-called love romantic marriage, whereby one finds a partner herself, and arranged slash facilitated marriage uh, trend reverse 1960s. Uh, from 1960, 1970 onwards, there were more love marriage. That is to say, individuals were expected or encouraged to find a marriage partner. And because of the decline in arranged and facilitated marriage, it is harder to find, quote unquote, appropriate marriage partner. So that's one thing. Uh, and there's a, a lack of opportunities uh, outside this arranged or facilitated marriage is to meet potential partner because the, the workforce is very much gender specific. The women tend to be concentrated in one area of employment and the men in the other area. Um, Can so, I just stop you there just to yeah. unpack that a little bit when you said that <laughs> okay. um, the workplace is quite gender specific. Can you give an example of what you're talking about there? Well, I mentioned earlier that the more girls go on to the tertiary education than boys in terms of percentage of the age cohort, but women tend to concentrating on arts, health, nursing, teaching, pharmacy, all these fields. The uh, care professions. Yeah, yeah. And so the, when in, in a company situation, in a workplace situation, the women find themselves in a very much of female-dominant workplace. So that really... Um, uh, reduces opportunities or I guess accidental or uh, genetic opportunities for them to meet and in the old days 30 40 years ago that your boss your supervisor at workplace might act as a, a arranged marriage or facilitated marriage mediator or even say if you're doing a postgrad study your supervisor might be acting as the marriage partner mediator but but the, in the Recently, due to, I guess, a value placed on the individual choice, that the, the people who used to think it a privilege and honor to act as 
a facilitative, a facilitated arranged marriage mediator, feel reluctant, feeling as if that it could be uh, invading or invading a privacy, the domain of privacy, or such effort may not be welcomed. So the, therefore, the, the, the lack of opportunity. And by the time the women find themselves in mid-30s, uh, they, 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 it's not that they're rejecting marriage. They have a desire, but somehow they drifted into unintentional singlehood. And hence the topic of this uh, film that the Japan, Japanese Film Festival is showing well, thank you. That's um, really interesting. It's quite a horrifying concept to think of your boss or supervisor <laughs> choosing a marriage partner or, hel- or helping you to choose one. Um, so I'm glad that um, has changed. But it's not forced, by the way, Claudia. You know, you yes. can say no. One can say no. It's just a providing opportunity. Um, you know, one can say no. It's not that you have to. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we'll come back to Claudia's discussion with Dr. Kauri Okano in just a moment. Uh, but in the meantime, let's take a short break with Isaac Hayes. This is Hung Up on My Baby.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And now we'll return to Claudia's conversation with Dr. Kaurari Okanu about the rise of single women in Japan. We're now going to hear a bit more about what's driving this trend. So that's an interesting point that women may not be choosing single life, rather drifting into it. I've read a few different anecdotal reviews on this and there seems to be a combination of experiences where some young women are really enjoying the freedoms of single life and the lifestyle that comes with that. And then there are others, as you say, who perhaps um, are looking for a partner who might be more uh, willing to share housework and so that the full domestic load doesn't fall on the woman and finding that a difficult search uh, criteria. (laughs) Can you talk about those aspects a little bit for us? Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Well, it's interesting. There has been... um much research, well, obviously much, there's been research done on this using um, marriage partner finding uh, agency data, you know, who, what kind of woman is looking for what kind of partner. And then if the offers are made, does, are they rejected? Who is accepting the offer with various attributes, such as education background, the kind of job, age, etc., etc. Now, the amongst the um, there are three uh, groups of people who ended up single. They may not marry at all. It's actually survey expected about twenty percent of women will never marry uh, throughout their life. And the the reason for there are three reasons for this. One is uh, uh, simply that women have a negative attitude to marriage. They simply reject the institution of marriage because the the cost of giving up a good career is too much. Uh, they are enjoying their leisure activity, such as going surfing in Australia or going skiing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they, they have an independent financial means not to depend on a husband. But this is a minority among the people who are not married. The second type are the people who want to marry. They have a strong desire to get married, but somehow unable to marry due to the external factors, such as, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, well, one of the things that I didn't mention is the, the labor market situation change in the last two decades, whereby irregular employment, that is to say non-permanent employment, casual or contract employment for both men and women increased. And that created an insecure financial base for getting married. Often women wants to have their partners uh, to have continuing uh, position uh, so that they can make a, a financial plan. So the irregular employment increase for both men and women is one of these external factors which uh, ad, which uh, unable women to marry. Uh, there is another one, as I mentioned earlier, that more women are in the workforce and due to the registration in mid-1980s, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Law, which came effect in 19, mid-1980s and has been revised since several times, which forces the companies to offer 
the same opportunities for work. But Chloe wouldn't believe in this, but prior to 1985, at the same university graduate, male and female, only male could get into so-called graduate career track, which will provide a long-term uh, uh, professional training, uh, will be offered the promotion prospect, pr prospect, will be offered the transfer to various branches, New York, Sydney, et cetera, et cetera. Even if the woman had the four-year university degree, they are put into so-called clerical track which didn't offer that. So because of the United Nations pressure, the government backed down and they instituted um, this registration, Equal, Equal Employment Opportunity Act uh, in mid-1980s. So since then, women had the same opportunity. They could get this career track job. But what happened five years afterwards is that women found that it's not for them because the working conditions for these uh, career track graduate position was so demanding in terms of time commitment, uh, energy commitment, that you expected to uh, take up a transfer to, say, for instance, uh, Hawaii uh, with six months' notice, and refusing to do that might affect your promotion prospects. Uh, women who are married with children, it was just not... Uh, viable. They found they found it wasn't worth it. So then the employer could say, oh, well, we've given opportunities, but you didn't take it up. So what's the point? So, um, but even so, so the women had opportunity, at least have a given opportunity to pursue the career and some actually pursued. And once they reached the middle management position in mid thirties, well, the opportunity cost of giving it up uh, seems too much for them. Um, the other aspect, which I think is probably similar in Australia as well, the marriage market is hard for highly educated women because according to the survey about attributes that, that women want in their partners uh, is that high education, higher education, that uh, in good income. And highly educated women wants to have equally educated men uh, and someone who earns similar amount of income. But of course, the lower educated women are, are looking for similar attribute as well. Men often uh, don't like, uh, some men uh, don't appreciate the women who have higher earning capacity than themselves and so on. So there's an unbalanced market and there's oversupply at <laughs> the higher, highly educated women and oversupply at the lower educated women. And because of that, yes, they have a strong desire to marriage and have a start a family. And the main incentive, I repeat, is to have children, but unable to marry due to these external factors. So this is the kind of 20% um, of the people who, who are not married. But the vast majority, two thirds, uh, are categorized into what's called are drifting into unintentional singlehood. Uh, they don't reject marriage. Um, the third type is that they have a passive attitude. So um, they have a desire to get married, but not too strong. 
So uh, they always have a, a desire to get married. After all, the services survey uh, indicates that over 80% of men want to get married at some point in life. But because they uh, didn't um, have a strong desire for marriage, thinking, oh, I'll get married eventually. So they invested their time and energy into their leisure activities, at work, and so on, without uh, investing much in romantic relations and finding a marriage partner as such. And then eventually uh, uh, they found themselves at the age where uh, it became, it becomes uh, difficult or uh, uh, unfeasible to find uh, what the, the kind of partner that they would like to have. So they didn't set out to, to remain single, but they ended up becoming single. And one of the, you know, the main character of this film in uh, Hold Me Back, <laughs> Japan, Japanese film festival, is one of those women drifting into unintentional singlehood, singlehood, because they are enjoying their single life uh, enormously and uh, getting into a permanent relationship or marriage, they fear, might force them to make changes the kind of changes that they may not wish to have that was professor kaori okano from la trobe university speaking about the rise of single women in japan if you are interested in hearing more from professor okano on this subject you can join her for a live talk this saturday at the kino cinema melbourne following the screening of the film hold me back directed by akiko oku you can book tickets for the Japanese Film Festival and find out more about the program at www.japanesefilmfestival.net. I'm Claudia, and you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR, and that was Luhui. And now over to you, Alice. Very much, Ella. Thank you very much. So last Friday, the government announced they would be raising the age for the minimum um, age for incarcerated children in Australia will be raised from 10 years old to 12 years old. So the attorney govern um, the sorry attorneys general agreed to develop a proposal to raise the age from ten to twelve, but this is still disastrously disastrously young, and does not meet the proposals put together by countless Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander activist groups who have been at the forefront of challenging this for many years. One of these groups is Change the Record, Australia's only national Aboriginal-led justice coalition of legal health and family violence prevention experts, whose mission is to end the incarceration of and family violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So this group has a campaign called Raise the Age. You may have heard of it. I'm sure you have. And it's been fighting for the um, for yeah the age to be risen from 10 to 14, which is the global median age for children in incarceration. Obviously, this new proposal, this new announcement does not meet that. But today we're going to hear from Sophie Trevitt. Sophie is the Executive Officer of Change the Record and the ACT Co-Chair of Australian Lawyers for Human Rights. I spoke to Sophie before Friday's announcement, so a couple of months before that. So in this conversation, you will hear the age being referred to as 10, not 12, because, yeah, I spoke to her before Friday, so that's why. But just, yeah, bear in mind as you're listening that it's now gone from 10 to 12. But the message behind this conversation hasn't changed. And um, the, the message is that children shouldn't be behind bars. And so I first asked Sophie what the incarceration rates um, are like in Australia? For both children and for adults, the proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are incarcerated compared to their non-Indigenous counterparts is is through the roof. So um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the most incarcerated people on earth um, here in Australia. And you know, that starts at the age of 10 for, for many very young children who are dragged into the criminal justice system. In places like the Northern Territory, where I used to work, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are over 40 times more likely to be um, arrested by police and thrown behind bars than their non-Indigenous peers. So it's a real crisis that starts at a very young age and then, you know, it's not just a, a prison sentence, it's also a life sentence for many people. And part of Change the Record's huge campaign is of Raise the Age. Can you tell us a little bit about this campaign? The Raise the Age campaign, I mean, people, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and grandmothers, have been fighting to raise the age for a really long time. Um, and it comes from the, the fact, the terrible fact, that in Australia, in every state and territory, children as young as 10 years old can be arrested by police, hauled before courts, thrown into prison cells. Now, the median age um, globally is 14, which is still extremely young. Um, but if you think about a 10-year-old in Australia, the average 10-year-old still needs to be in a car booster seat. They're, they're not big enough to, to be able to, to, wow. to sit in a car with a seatbelt. So we're talking about very, very little children. Um, and, you know, I, I had experience of, of working with kids as young as 10 who had been arrested by police and 
it is just so confronting to see a tiny, tiny child um, who, you know, you would normally see, well, if you have kids, you would, you would see them at home, but you would see them, you know, mm. in, in playgrounds with other tiny children doing very childlike things, not being brought into a court, let alone being put in a prison away from their parents, away from the people who love them, away from school, away from friends. It's an extremely brutal um, way to treat children. And what we know from all the medical evidence is that it can cause lifelong damage to a child to even be put in prison or to be hauled before the courts for a very short period of time. Um, so that's how that's how I became involved in the campaign and, and we basically started both state and territory and national work to try to convince lawmakers um, to lift the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 so that you can no longer send children that young to prison. What type of things are they being charged with, these children? Yeah, so the vast majority of children under 14 are being charged and convicted of very minor crimes. So it's extremely rare that kids that young are being charged with serious offending, extremely, extremely rare that they're being charged with things like violent offending. Um, the majority of kids are being charged with things like property damage. So, you know, that could be graffitiing um, a building or breaking a window or um, maybe very minor theft and shoplifting, that kind of thing. So these, this is bad behaviour, obviously, and we as adults need to teach kids not to engage in that kind of behaviour. Um, but these are not... These are not malicious crimes that are that are designed to hurt members of the community. Um, these are often opportunistic, done in groups of kids who are being influenced by each other. In other contexts, would be very childish crimes. I I'm sure all of us can think of naughty things that we have done that cross over that threshold. You know, I I remember stealing chocolate coated licorice bullets from the Video Easy store near my house and getting into serious trouble from my parents. But certainly, there was no suggestion of calling the police. And when a child, say between 10 and 14, comes in front of the court or ends up going to prison, how long are they put away for? Is there a, a limit? No. So it can really be anything from, you know, days to weeks to months to, to even longer. I think one of the most insidious and dangerous parts of the way that Australia, all the states and territories, um, deal with both young people and adults, to be honest, is that we lock people up very easily and we often lock them up before they've even been convicted of a crime. And we do this because there are there are long delays in having your matter heard before court because courts are under-resourced, judges are under-resourced. So you actually end up having tiny children being held in prison cells before they've even been found guilty of a crime. And what happens often is that by the time that kid gets brought before a court, the judge says, yes, we think you did the bad thing. So I guess we, you know, we agree with, with the police's charge. You did whatever, steal that baseball cap, but we would never send you to prison for it because it's such a minor crime. But that kid has already been in prison waiting for their day in court. So you actually have this sort of double injustice where not only are you treating children terribly by sending them to prison at all, but these kids are spending time in prison without even being convicted of anything, potentially for much longer than they would be had a judge just heard their matter much earlier. And, uh, I mean, I'm assuming there is no compensation for something like that. If a judge says, well, we no. wouldn't have done that, actually. No, there isn't. Um, I mean, otherwise, I guess you would you would have 
many, many people, children and adults, saying we should never have been in there for that amount of time. And it's not uncommon. I think this is one of the most egregious things about the inverted commas justice system is because of all these failings, because of the under-resourcing, you have people literally languishing behind bars, particularly women and children seem to be particularly Mm -hmm. caught in this trap for far longer than they ever would be, even if they were found guilty of the offence. So you're really punishing people in a way that a court or a judge has never sanctioned. Mm. What are the actual maybe community-focused programs that are far better than putting people in prison? So I, I feel like there are sort of two categories of this. One is the the programs that respond directly to a person's behaviour. So if you're thinking about kids who are mucking up, there are some amazing programs around the country that respond directly to, okay, why is this kid disengaging from school and, and not going to school um, and, you know, running amok with their friends? And maybe it's a program around... Um, getting kids together, working with animals and teaching them responsibility, or maybe it's a type of um, victim conferencing session where they actually sit with the person whose business they broke into to understand, no, actually it wasn't just this building that you broke into and like chuck some stuff around. There's a real person here who then had to clean that up the next day and actually felt really scared because someone had been in the building without their permission. You know, there's, there's those kind of programs. But then there's the systemic, deep level reform that needs to happen. My um, honest belief from working in the Territory is that the largest driver of crime in the Territory is a lack of housing. I've never worked anywhere where the state of housing is so diabolical. It has been raised in numerous royal commissions, inquiries. Everyone acknowledges that it's an absolute scandal. And nothing is being done. Before I worked with children, I worked with adults in the housing space. And there was this one incredible grandmother who had six children in her care who had been waiting for housing for six years. She and her children, her grandchildren, sorry, had been homeless. No wonder those kids are running amok. They have nowhere to live. And that is a state failure. That's certainly not a failure of that grandmother who was doing everything mm-hmm. humanly possible to look up after those kids. And it's not a failing of those children who have a basic right to adequate housing. So then you sort of look at it on that level and there are huge government failures that are that are driving people into prisons when actually what they need is their basic human rights being met. And that was the first part of mine and Sophie's conversation um, about the Raise the Age campaign and her experience in the Territory with child incarceration. Now we're going to take a quick listen to a um, 3CR Beyond the Bars song. So you will hear from Alfie, Kev, Rocky, Fenno, Henry and Combo. And their song together is called Because of Her We Can. And just a reminder for the listeners out there, this is the 3CR Beyond the Bars NADOC broadcasts. And um, they're incredible and you can find them all on the website. Because of her we can yeah. I wanna be a better, better man yeah. Because of her we can yeah. I wanna be a better, better man For my kids and my family Ooh, you 
And that was Because of Her We Can. Um, And that one particular song was from the 2018 broadcast of Beyond the Bars. Um, And that's where 3CR goes to six Victorian prisons during NADOC week. You can find those recordings on the 3CR um, website. So do check them out. They are fantastic. And now we're going to head to part two of my conversation with Sophie from Change the Record. And um, now we're going to look into a bit more about how child incarceration affects family and community. And what does it do for mothers um, to be separated from their children and families and communities? I think the impact on women is huge. So there's there's twofold, right? There's what does it do to mums and to grandmas to have their kids behind bars? I mean, it breaks their hearts is, is what it does. I predominantly worked with mums and grandmas um, with the kids that I was working with who were in prison. And it is so hard for these families who, you know, already are struggling with things like housing, terrible social security, trying to find work in places where there isn't much work then trying to get out to the youth detention centre, which is located, you know, about 20 k's out of town. So you require a car to get there. They're desperately worried about their kids. And there are all these barriers in place um, to them providing the type of love and care that they want to, to their children, because they're being separated. And then you have the other side of it, which is, well, what about when we lock up mums? And what about when we take them away from their kids? And that happens increasingly frequently 
um, because of these very punitive laws that are introduced that do things like um, make it a, you know, hold you on remand, um, so, so lock you up before you've been convicted of anything for relatively minor crimes. So you've got, you know, women who are, who are being, uh, a really common one is women who are charged with inverted commas fraud, fraud, but what fraud actually is, is Centrelink inaccuracies. So women who are, who are receiving Centrelink, who are often like the primary caregiver for kids, so they're not working and they might do a little bit of work on the side, you know, just a few hours a week. And if for some reason that hasn't been declared correctly to Centrelink, they get lumped with these enormous debts that they can't pay back because they don't receive enough money. And then they get charged with fraud as if they deliberately scam the system. When I promise you that is not the case. Anyone, you know, for your Australian listeners, anyone who's tried to navigate Centrelink, including those of us who are on things like youth allowance when we were at university, know how confusing and difficult that system is. Um, so, you know, if you're trying to navigate it whilst also trying to find housing, trying to deal with a bunch of kids, maybe English is your second or third language, it becomes extremely difficult and then you can become criminalised at the end of that process. The other big thing is is police wrongly identifying the perpetrator of domestic violence. So women calling police or other people calling police because a woman is, is uh, suffering domestic violence and when the police get there, the male perpetrator says it was actually her or, or she retaliates and then she's convicted of crimes when actually she is the victim of DV. She ends up doing time in prison separated from her kids. And that causes such huge, huge trauma to both mom and bubs who ha have had one of the most important relationships in their lives severed. And I think what the evidence tells us is that there is a huge connection between children that are put in the child protection system so who are taken away from their families for whatever reason, including if a parent is in prison, for example, those kids are so much more likely to, to become trapped in the criminal justice system because we know that when you break that connection with family, with culture, with community, you're doing harm to kids and, and, and you're pushing them basically into situations where they're more likely to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit more to that cycle of being taken away from your from your mother or your, from your family as a child being taken into child protection services and potential cycle of then incarceration rates if there is one of course yeah so there is there's a really strong connection and and they call these kids the crossover kids and it's about the crossover between the child protection system and the criminal justice system the crossover happens for a number of reasons. There's a real direct crossover, which happens when kids are criminalised for behaviour that would otherwise be naughty but normal within a household. So, for example, I know of kids who, you know, would get into an argument with other children in a group group facility. Um, so it would be like getting into a fight with your siblings at home. Maybe they throw something out a window and it breaks or they draw on the walls um, or they you know, throw a plate across the room. That all of a sudden stops just being naughty and becomes property damage. And they can then be charged and imprisoned potentially for what would be naughty behaviour but not criminal behaviour in any other context. So there's that type of crossover that happens. And then there's the, the sort of uh, longer term or more systemic crossover, which is when you have a child and you take them away from everyone who loves them and supports them and makes them feel safe and confident in who they are, you then expose that kid to a whole bunch of more 
like additional risks because they don't feel a sense of belonging. They, they don't feel a strong sense of identity. So maybe that means they no longer feel motivated to engage with school because they're unhappy. Or maybe it means they fall into the wrong crowd because they try to find a sense of belonging somewhere else. But you see those kids then get driven into, into groups and circumstances where they behave badly effectively because they're hurting, because you've taken them away from, from the things that are important and, and nourishing to them and, and put them in a, in a traumatic environment. And that was my interview with Sophie Trevitt, Executive Officer of Change the Record. And um, we were speaking about their campaign, Raise the Age, um, yeah, which obviously follows Friday's announcement from the government that they are proposing to raise the age from 10 years old to 12, which is um, the minimum child incarceration age. And Change the Record still believe that is just far too young. And if you are interested in finding out a little bit more or you just want to hear some other perspectives and stories around this particular subject, head over to Doing Time um, as Marissa had an interview on Monday, which is up on the website so you can listen to it um, even if you missed it live. And that was with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and the Human Rights Law Centre. So do check out Doing Time if you want to catch it live, it's on Mondays between 4 to 5 p.m. Otherwise, head over on the website and take a listen to the podcast. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was Oral Risk from Asphyxiation. Now we're going to take a look at reconciliation in Chile after the Pinochet era and the case of Adriana Rivas. So Rivas, this is a case we've covered on Wednesday Brekkie before. Rivas is a former secretary to the chief of the infamous secret police under the Pinochet era, known as Dina. She fled to Australia while under investigation in Chile and is accused of involvement in the disappearance of seven people who are presumed dead. And she faces charges of aggravated kidnapping in Chile. Chile have made an extradition request, which Rivas has been fighting in Australian courts. So one court has already rejected her appeal, and the full bench of the federal court will hear her latest appeal tomorrow. So we're joined again this morning by Pilar Aguilera. She's the 3CR chairwoman, and she's also an activist with the Australian chapter of National Campaign for Truth and Justice in Chile. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Brekkie, Pilar. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to be on Brekkie again. Thanks for joining us. So, yeah, first Hi. up, can I get you to start by giving us a quick recap of the Adriana Rivas case? Yes, well, you, you summed it up very well. Adriana Rivas is wanted for the aggravated kidnapping of seven people. I'd like to name those people because I think it's really important always to remember who they are. We focus a lot on her and her crimes, but we often forget who these victims are. Uh, Reynalda Pereira, who was pregnant at the time of her disappearance and torture. Hector Vélez, Fernando Ortiz, Horacio Cepeda, Linco Yamberrios, Fernando Navarro and Victor Diaz. Now, Adriana Rivas, Chile requested her extradition and... Rivers was um, arrested on the 19th of February 2019. She's been on remand in a New South Wales um, correctional facility ever since 2019. And tomorrow she will um, uh, appeal before the full bench of the federal court um, before three judges. Now, um, she has had four reviews and appeals, all of which have been unsuccessful. And um, the court, two courts have determined that she is extraditable. So under the extradition treaty, what the Australian courts have to determine is whether or not Rivers is extraditable. They are not um, in the business of determining whether she's guilty of the seven charges. That's a matter for the Chilean courts to determine. Um, and I'll just talk a little bit about the grounds on which she's appealing. Yep. Um, she's pretty much, in our view, she's having another go at using similar allegations to her appeals in the past. She has appealed before a single judge of the federal court, which was Judge Abraham. And in June this year, uh, the judge determined that none of her um, appeal allegations were valid and that she was still extraditable and eligible for surrender. So I'll just, there's 17 um, allegations that she's using in her defence or in her appeal argument. Um, They're basically around three main categories and one of them is this constant allegation that she's not guilty, so she should not be extradited. And as I mentioned earlier, this can't be looked at by the federal court because it is a matter for the Chilean court. Um, just an aside, she has been charged with seven counts of aggravated kidnapping in Chile and 
that was in around 2006, 2007. And, you know, if she's extradited, then that will be looked at in the Chilean courts. There is this argument she's used about amnesty law relating to the fact that there was an amnesty for crimes committed by the military during the Pinochet dictatorship, which lasted 17 years. Um, but both a magistrate, Stuart, and Judge Abraham have both previously ruled against this on several grounds. And um, based on the fact that the Supreme Court of Chile issued this extradition request and that there's, they agree, the Supreme Court of Chile agrees that there's no amnesty for crimes against humanity or for charges of a continuing offence, so i.e. in the case where there is a disappearance there's no body, so that's a continuing offence. Um, in her last appeal, Adriana Rivas hired an expert to give this opinion around the issue of amnesty law, and even they determined that the courts had previously rejected this because of, um, you know, historical crimes and crimes against humanity um, don't fall under that amnesty. And just historically in Chile... During the dictatorship, um, Pinochet, the dictator, um, decreed this. It wasn't a law. He passed a decree of this amnesty. And it was basically to protect himself and the other high-ranking military officers because um, they kind of knew this day would come where they'd be facing courts for crimes you know, that were committed under the dictatorship. So that's two of them. And the third one is that she claims she's been persecuted for her political beliefs. Um, the courts have determined here and in Chile that it's not her political beliefs, but her criminal and violent conduct. So um, they're basically the arguments that she's using. The only time that she's discussed her political beliefs is in an interview she gave in Australia to SBS Radio in 2013, where she did describe that um, being a part of the secret police were the best years of her life. Yeah, um, yeah that's pretty shocking. Yeah, yeah, and she justified the use of torture as well. Yeah, and she was also um, a part of a documentary made by her niece, right, which is how a lot of um, people came to learn about the case. Correct, yes. And and uh, as far as we know, they no longer have a relationship. They were very close. And it's interesting because her niece, um, a young filmmaker in Chile, um, started off doing making this documentary because Adriana was her favourite auntie and the family didn't really know about this part of her life. She kept it very much under wraps. And um, she set out in this documentary to defend her aunt name that ended up um, actually questioning a lot because she actually did interview uh, human rights lawyers and human rights activists um, and there were just so many holes in the story that uh, she ended up becoming an activist herself and speaking out against these crimes which wow. is very interesting. Do you know if we're able to access that film in Australia actually? I was trying to have a look myself and I couldn't find it I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I know that it had sort of international release through Berlin and it was shown in Australia through um, various sort of Latin American film festivals a few years ago. Uh, we also were able to um, lease it. Uh, we borrowed it, but you know, had to pay for it, uh, for a September 11 commemoration a couple of years ago. Um, 
And it is it is worth seeing. Um, I mean, in these historical cases, it's always interesting to hear people speak. Um, Adriana Rivas is obviously, she comes across in this film as being very troubled, very almost in a way tormented. And I, I don't know that you can't be if you had lived part of your life um, doing horrendous things. Like she was part of an elite squadron and she worked in an extermination centre. Uh, there's testimony that she was there, that she was present. There's also eyewitness accounts of her uh, participating in the kidnapping of these seven people. Um, and, I mean, this extermination centre wasn't known about until about 2007. And the reason was is because there were no survivors. There were rumours. Um, and then, you know, a lot was found out about... Uh, basically, it was torture, holding people there, and then disappearing them. Um, and yeah, really horrific. Really horrific, and we've had a lot of contact with the family members of these seven victims who are very much... Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, yeah, um, it's been really great um, to speak to them and to hear stories. Also very painful. It's very awful the way that they have, you know, in the years after 76, how they've um, discovered what happened to their family members through anecdotal stories and through some of these um, declarations by members of the DNA or the military. Um, and that's been an ongoing thing, you know, that um, they've never had these... these uh, they've never had closure, you know, when, when a family member has disappeared and it's been said by various Chilean activists that it's one of the most... Um, violent forms, it's, it's a very brutal form of punishment for the families because um, at least with a dead body you get to grieve them and farewell them. When somebody's disappeared, you live in this hope that, you know, maybe you'll know something. I mean, it, it's very obvious that these people um, won't be coming back, but there, there is no closure. And yeah. So the suffering that these families have endured, it's very much about intergenerational trauma because it's the grandkids that carry on um, the search for truth and the search for justice and I guess our message from the campaign is and on behalf of the family members is that um, there is no use by date on these past crimes. These are crimes against humanity and they should never go unpunished. Um, so we really hope that she will be extradited um, whatever happens tomorrow in the federal court won't be known about for probably another three months. Um, these things take time. But, uh, you know, we are, based on previous um, occurrences and appearances in the court, we hope that they will decide that she is extraditable. And then the next step after that is... Um, this goes to the Attorney-General. So the Attorney-General will always have a final say in whether or not she is extradited, um, but they base that decision on what the courts have previously um, determined and also submissions. So Rivas will submit information and um, so will we. Yeah, so as far as the legal process goes, regardless of what the outcome is tomorrow, it'll still have to go past the Attorney-General, is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay, yeah. Yes. They they get a final say. 
Um, so if if the federal court was to decide in a few months that she's not extraditable, then that's the end of that. She'll be released and uh, she'll go back to um, living her life in Sydney. Um, yep. The Attorney General can appeal that decision. Again, it all takes time. Um, yep. And then if they decide she is extraditable, she can have one more chance at an appeal before the High Court. Um, that needs to be submitted and the High Court may or may not grant that appeal based yep. on previous determination. So, yeah, it's a long process. A very long However, legal process. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... This one hasn't been as long as some of the other extradition cases that have lasted 10 years. I mean, this has been relatively quick if we think that she was arrested in February 2019. Um, I mean, there there were things in train from about 2014 before she was arrested. Um, So it's only been about two years. And when you say um, relatively quick, that's relative to other countries that have sought um, received extradition orders from Chile? Correct. Yep. Correct. No, well, this is the first extradition case to Chile. So this is a really emblematic case. Um, the first uh, from Australia, you mean? Or? From Australia, yep. yes, sorry. And when I say other extradition cases, I mean in Australia. Um, uh, so, see, yeah, yep. this is the first one to from Australia to Chile. And, Does um, that mean it's setting um, a bit of a precedent for potential future cases then? Correct. And that's why we're so um, watching everything and learning a lot about the legal processes because um, we feel that these cases may come up again in the future. I mean, uh, there's been a, an extradition case, um, a very well-known case in, from Italy to South America. The Italian government um, sued three governments in Latin America, Uruguay, Argentina and Chile, for um, crimes committed during these dictatorships under what was known as Operation Condor. And Operation Condor was like a sharing of intelligence um, by uh, countries in Latin America I think it was Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina and Chile. Um, At the time, they all had dictatorships in the 70s and shared intelligence and exchanged prisoners, etc. And there were quite a lot of Italian citizens uh, that were victims of that, including someone who's living in Melbourne. Their father was one of the victims of of those crimes. And the Italian government sued and were able to... Um, they were really successful in doing that. And um, so we feel hopeful that, you know, this this case is emblematic and we may get some results for the future because not only are there, we believe, um, other Chilean uh, DINA agents living in our midst, um, but there are also Uruguayans or Argentinians that we've heard of as well, ex-military or... You know, a lot of people fled, um, you know, during the 70s and 80s to Australia. And as you said, um, here Australia is only um, looking at uh, Adriana's eligibility for um, extradition rather than investigating the case. Um, Do you think there needs to be more resources in Australia to have more investigation powers for these kind of cases? Um, Well, according to extradition law, and I'm not an expert, um, it's always the country of origin that determines 
the guilt of the the person who's you know request to be extradited. So it's not what what the Australians do determine is whether or not the crime is a crime in this country as well. Yep. So you know they have to determine that there's a the same way. So for example, we don't have the death penalty if a country was requesting someone for the death penalty. That would be a different different yep. scenario. But um, and it, sorry, we're just running out of time, Pilar, and I just wanted to ask real quickly before we have to run off, um, if I could get you to talk a little about the reconciliation process in Chile, as you said, it's um, really important, but particularly the importance of um, yeah justice in this process, given it's so, such recent history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's been really fraught. It's been really slow. Um, it, it's been frustrating, but um, a lot of Adriana Rivers' colleagues in Medina have been sentenced, um, some up to 10 years, others much less. Um, it's, it's, very, it's been very slow and very hesitant. There hasn't been a political will in Chile. Um, and that's because the right wing still have so much power. I mean, the current president, Piñera, um, who was also involved in the dictatorship in some way, um, they, there's still a real hold on power, and until the constitution changes, which is from '81, which is something that the dictatorship set up, then no real change can happen. So it's been a frustrating thing. Yeah, um, absolutely. All right, there's important. so much more I'd like to ask you about, but we've um, run out of time, <laughs> so I'm going to have to say thank you and yeah, goodbye. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Thanks, Pila, and yeah, we'll definitely get you back in a few months' time when we've got more information on this latest uh, appeal. Yes, thanks, Ella. Bye, Pila. All right, that was Pila Aguilera, chairperson of 3CR and an activist with the National Campaign for Truth and Justice in Chile. And a big thank you to all our guests today. That's all we've got time for today. Uh, stay tuned for Stick Together. Radio, radio. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.